You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Pleasant View Baptist Church in Carrollton, Georgia. While we're delighted you're listening, we'd much rather you worship Jesus with us in person Sundays at 10 a.m. You can find out more about our church and those services at mypbbc.org. Basically, if you go back and read over those 95 theses, the whole point of them, or one of the main points of them, was that Luther uh, saw that the church at that time was missing something about the way salvation works. Uh, This way about uh, the way that we inherit eternal life. And and that Luther believed, and and we believe because we have followed in his stead, that, uh, that the way that we inherit eternal life is a little bit different than the way that the church was teaching it at that point. It's a great question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's such a great question that Mark records someone else asking the exact question here in Mark 10. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Last week, we saw Jesus make it clear what does it mean for him to be Messiah and for us to follow him. And we'll pick up in, in, uh, like I said, in chapter 10, verse 17. uh, And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to them, Teacher, uh, sorry, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Mark introduces us to this man in verse 17 as just a man. In fact, the original Greek reads even more generic than that. It reads, Someone walks up to Jesus. As Jesus was going away, someone walks up to Jesus. I love the way that he does that. If we were to read this story, this account from the book of Luke, Luke tells us that this is a rich young ruler, a Jewish ruler that had acquired much wealth. But Mark uh, doesn't do that for us. He just tells us someone walks up to Jesus. I love that because we find in this man a lot about ourselves. He's just a normal guy with this burning question in his heart. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I was listening uh, to someone talk about this passage this week, and he brought up a great point that he's, it's almost the perfect question. How do I get eternal life is the basic. It's one of the fundamental questions of life, but he adds this part of it. What must I do? And so doing this, man kind of shows his heart. He's thinking in himself, you know, I think I've got it. I think I've, I've done the right things. I think that I've not done the wrong things. But I just want to make sure that, like, that I've got it nailed down. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It's possible that someone here this morning came here this morning for that exact reason. You didn't go to Jesus while he was journeying. You just decided, let's go to church and ask that question. It's also possible somebody's watching on Facebook right now who's wondering that exact thing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What will it take? What do I have to do? What must I not do? Jesus' response shows us that he understands this man's background. It shows us he's going to go to what the young man knows. 
And so he brings up the Jewish law, and he recites part of the Ten Commandments to him. Right? He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not uh, bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus is quoting the second half of the Ten Commandments. He's not quoting the ones uh, that relate to your relationship with God. He's actually just talking about these relationships with other people. Um, and so doing, he, he skips the first four. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And then the man says something that is absolutely wild. And the more I've read it this week, the, the more outrageous it has become. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All of these I have kept from my youth. I have been so good my entire life. I have never messed up a single time. There's not been a single sin that I've committed. I am perfect. I don't know about you, but like the more I read that, the more I think about that, the angrier I get. This man comes up to Jesus and he's like, listen, I just need to know what's the checklist to get into heaven. That's basically what he's asking, right? What is the checklist to get into heaven and then I'll let you be on your way? And Jesus says, well, you know what the law says? And he's like, oh, the law? Done it. Nailed it. Perfect, right? I've, I've done every single one. I want Jesus to get angry in that moment, right? I mean, I want him to just lash out this guy who looks Jesus in the eye Jesus, who John calls the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And he looks him in the eye, and he's like, no, I've got it. I've nailed it. And then I realize how often I can be that that man. I realize how often, whether it's someone or just God himself confronts me with my sin, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 that wasn't a sin. Uh, It was just, I was tired, right? It, It wasn't like my heart was wrong in that moment. It was just that they did something, right, to me. I was just responding to the way they made me feel. Sorry, I've got a picture for this as we follow along. Should have been. That was Martin Luther. Should have showed you that. And this is um, a picture of this account, um, a modern-day picture of it, actually. And uh, I realize how often I can be this person that brushes aside accusations of my sin. No, I'm not somebody that sins. I'm not somebody that has a heart that says, I'm out for Micah. I'm really just somebody that makes mistakes every now and then. I overlook things. I didn't mean to do that. It just kind of happened. It slipped out of my mouth while I was having a bad moment. We become like this man who says, really, in reality, like when you take away all that, the times where I was tired, the times where somebody made me angry, when it was really their fault, really, I haven't sinned since I was a kid, right? That's the danger for us this morning, that when we really think about it, if we're really being honest with ourselves, we would think, you know, I'm pretty close to heaven. I might need, like, some clarification on this part, or I might need to do a little bit better of being a little bit more self-controlled every now and then, but basically, I'm pretty good enough to get into heaven. It's easy to think that, if we're being honest. But look at Jesus. Jesus looks at him and For all that he has said, the arrogance with which this man has come to Jesus. He doesn't berate him like I wish he would. It says, Jesus looks at him. Now, I wish there was a little different word there. And Jesus looking at him. This this is the same word that Mark is going to use later on when uh, Peter has said, Jesus, I won't deny you. And then he denies him three times. The second time, uh, or maybe it's the third, but one of those two, uh, there's a servant girl that sees Peter. 
And it's, it's you, Peter uses, or sorry, Mark uses this exact word about the servant girl looking at Peter. And it's very clear that Mark doesn't just mean it like he sees her or she sees him with her eyes. It's that she knows who this man is, right? Jesus, in the same way, I think Mark is telling us the same thing about Jesus, that Jesus sees this man for all that he is, right? And I think if Jesus sees this man for all that he is, for the arrogance, for the pride, for the overlooking of his sin, doesn't he come with judgment and justice? Doesn't he lay down the hammer? No. It says that looking at him, seeing for all that he was, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Because as much as I don't like to admit it, Jesus loves the self-righteous. Jesus loves the arrogant. He loves the proud. He loves the people that are overlooking their sin. And it's nice to put people in two different groups and think that Jesus likes the good people who acknowledge our sin and, and admit that we're Jesus loves all of us. Man, that's good news for the proud, for the arrogant, for those that like to look over their own sin. Jesus looks at us and he loves him. And so loving him says to him this, out of love, Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You're actually lacking something because you have so much. You're lacking something because you have so much. Jesus saw the man's heart. He knew what he loved. And Jesus asked him to let it go. I was thinking that even just this morning as I was reading over my notes that you ever know, like sometimes you come, maybe you come home or, you, uh, or maybe you're going somewhere else to family's house. Maybe it's Thanksgiving or whatever. And you go and you're wanting, you're expecting this like big hug and they've got stuff in their hands, right? Maybe it's just they come in from the grocery store, right? And you're wanting this big hug your big this big hug and they still hold on to like their bags or whatever and so you hug them and they're just like standing awkwardly and you're like no come on like let go of the stuff and hug me right in the same way that's what jesus is asking he's like listen man if you want to embrace me as jesus as god if you want to follow me you've got to let go of these things he does the same thing for us Look at verse 23. This is quite, it's quite a statement. Verse 23 through 27. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus takes this moment and he realized that this man who has come to Jesus with this basic question of how, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he realizes I've got a moment to teach my disciples about what this is about. And so he pulls them together, almost like you know a coach calling a timeout in this moment. And he calls them down. He says, listen, here's what we've got to be thinking about. And he says to them, it is difficult. Look how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
Then he takes it actually a step further in verse 25 and says, it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, maybe, I don't know, maybe you've heard there's some really creative ways to get around how difficult this passage is. Uh, maybe you've heard that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. Y'all heard that? There's the eye of the needle. And, and so what it really meant was that there was this gate that was kind of at the bottom, and you could actually get a camel through, but you actually had to get the camel to, like, to kneel down and to walk on their knees. And it was this saying that you have to actually humble yourself to enter the kingdom of God. Some commentators try to say that the word for camel is actually the word for rope, and all he's saying is, is, you know, it's really difficult to get a thicker rope through a needle. That's not, I don't think, what he's saying. I think what he's actually saying is, is that, I want to double click this. Oh, I did double click. Is that that's a camel. Camels, uh, I looked this up this week. Camels are about six feet tall. I'm just under six feet. They're about 10 feet long. They weigh about 1,500 pounds. And he's saying that it is easier to get that animal, you probably can't even see that I'm holding something up, through the eye of this needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? I don't even know if I could look through this eye of the needle, but I'm supposed to get an animal that's as tall as I am and twice as long as I am tall through this tiny, tiny hole. The whole point is not, well, I must humble myself. The whole point is, there ain't no way. Not happening. This is never going to happen. That's what the disciples say. Then who can be saved? Jesus, what you're talking about is impossible. To get a through the eye of a needle? No man could do that. Jesus goes, you're right. It is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Any man now, any woman now, any child now who confesses their sins and calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. With man, that would be impossible, but not with God. But unfortunately for the man that came to Jesus, we skipped this verse on purpose. It was too late for him. He had already walked away. Verse 22 says, Disheartened by what Jesus had said, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't deny himself of his riches. He couldn't, to borrow from last week's sermon, he couldn't murder his money. And because he couldn't do those things, he couldn't follow Jesus. I thought about this week. Um, there, there was a kid that grew up in my church. He's much younger than me, probably like 10 years younger than me. And he, um, his parents had been faithful to church. They had brought him in church. They had talked to him and prayed for him. And I remember asking my parents about him when he was in high school. And my mom told me this story that he, uh, his parents had been talking to him about it. And finally, he just looked at them and said, listen, mom and dad, I've been thinking. And I know that if I come to Jesus, I can't be friends with him and him and him. And I just don't know that I can do that. Now, it's a sad thing that that was the decision that he made at that point. But it's also, I remember thinking how res much respect I had for that kid, that he was actually counting the cost. He actually said to himself, if I follow Jesus, my life will have to change. 
As much as it's sad that this young man walks away, the, the young man in Mark 10, that he walks away from Jesus and doesn't follow because he loves his money, give credit to the man that he actually said, you know what, Jesus, if that's what I must do to follow you, I don't know that I can do it. Because I've witnessed many people who have said, I'll follow Jesus, but that whole like dying to myself thing, like we're going to have to tweak that a bit. I'll, you know, I'll do, I'll carry my cross sometimes when I, when I want to, when I'm feeling good, when it's an emotional high. Listen, just because you don't have a lot in your bank account doesn't mean that we get a pass from this, right? We could talk about the fact that if you're here today wearing clothes that you didn't wear yesterday, you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. We could talk about that, and I won't go there. I'll just leave it there. Let me bring up this. It might be a soft subject for some of us. What about the fact that we live in a great country? I think most of us would say that. What about the fact that sometimes Jesus calls us to leave our great country and to give up being Americans? You may think, when would Jesus ever call us to give up being Americans? As Southern Baptists, we have 5,000 people that have done so, that have heard the call from Jesus and have said, we must go across ocean and desert because he has called us to leave, to to functionally, I know you may say, well, they're still Americans. Well, they're not getting any of the perks of being an American. To go and follow him. I dream and pray about the day that as Pleasant View Baptist Church, we will have raised up kids who will hear God calling them and will go. Here's the scary part about that statement. Is that as, as a pastor, if I pray that prayer, if I dream that dream, it may be my kid that goes. And that day, if that day comes, right, God forbid that I'd go away sorrowful. Right? Because Jesus is worth it. So give credit to the man that at least he didn't negotiate the terms of his salvation. Peter sees in this moment, I, I, I kind of love Peter for just his brute strategic at this moment, to borrow from George Bush, um, this just this brute strategy. He says, uh, i got to find it, in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see? He's saying, look, Jesus, look, that man went away sad. We didn't go away. We're here. Not only are we here, but we've given up tons of stuff. Peter has a mother-in-law. You ever thought about that? You know what that means, to have a mother-in-law? It means to have a wife. Peter hasn't been with his family for who knows how long. And so he says, look, we have given up so much to follow you. We've given up so much. And Jesus says this in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive back a hundredfold. And this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last. Jesus tells the apostles, listen, whatever you give up, you're going to get back way more than that. So let's not look at this like a spreadsheet, right, where you're going, Jesus, listen, this is what we've given up. So what are we getting? Commentator pointed out, imagine, right, 
Imagine if at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, tells his disciples, hey, go, you know, see what you got. The disciples come to this little boy. They figure out he's the only one that's smart enough to bring lunch on this trip. And he has five loaves and two fishes. And they're like, listen, kid, Jesus needs this. He's going to feed. Apparently, he's going to feed all of us with it. And the little boy looks at them and goes, wait, wait, hold on, time out. So I'm going to give you five loaves and two fishes, and you're going to give me what exactly, precisely? I need to know the exact amount before I'm willing to make this decision. That's what Peter's doing, basically, in this moment. Imagine the sower who goes out and sows and sows the seed, and he looks back at the end of the year, and he goes, yeah, some grain produced 30-fold, some 60-fold, some even produce 100-fold. But what did I have to give up? What was I doing all those days? No. The point of this whole thing that Jesus is saying is, listen, Peter, if you're doing a cost analysis of following me, your mind is on the wrong things. But then he goes on, right? Verse 30, uh, sorry, 32. And when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again. So again, he's calling the disciples to himself. Kind of another little, you know, coach timeout huddle. He began to tell them what was going to happen to them. Again, we, we read this last week, but he does it again. Saying, see, listen, look, remember, Peter had said, see, now Jesus is saying, look, we are going up to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus says, remember what I told you. All these things are going to happen to me. Look at how all these things will happen to Jesus. Right? I mean, Jesus only does one thing in these verses. He will be delivered. Someone else will deliver him. Someone else will condemn him. Someone else will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him, and they will kill him. He will be the victim of all of those things. And yet, as believers, this is what we hold most above all, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. This is the thing that we come back to and we remind ourselves and we remind our families about. Don't forget the gospel that Jesus suffered and died and rose again. It's no coincidence that Mark puts this here, right? It's, it's not like Mark is just like, oh, here's a story, and oh yeah, here's another story, and then here's another. No, what he's doing here in this moment, if we're, if we're reading carefully, if we're listening carefully, is that Mark is saying, listen, all these things that you are giving up, don't forget, yeah, you will get back. But also, you're following someone who gave up everything. Jesus gives up his whole life for you. This morning, a phrase was uttered in our house that I'm sure has been uttered probably in your house and will be uttered increasingly so in the days to come. And that is, yeah, that looks cool, but don't forget, Christmas is coming, right? Something was pointed out on the phone of, ooh, that looks fun, right? It's like, yeah, 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 but don't forget, you know, Christmas is coming, and in my, you know, waking up stupor, I was thinking about that, and I realized, like, that's, that's the gospel. Like, that's a reminder of the gospel. Hey, don't forget, better days are coming ahead. A better day is coming when you will get the things that you want, and you will be joyful. Christmas is coming. And in that light, it's heartbreaking what happens 
next. Verse 35, James and John. These are the sons of Zebedee, also called the sons of thunder. These are the two guys, just for reference, these are the two guys who Jesus gets rejected by a town. They don't believe that Jesus uh, can do or they don't want Jesus in their town. And James and John kind of pull Jesus up. Hey, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and burn this city to the ground? And Jesus is like, oh, like, uh, what? Um, These are the two guys, just so you know. That's who these two guys are. So they come up to him, and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory when your kingdom is fulfilled. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Uh, what the, the, it sounds really crazy what the disciples seem to be asking, but it's actually something we're probably quite familiar with. This is a, a picture of the cabinet room in the 1980s. I believe this is uh, George H.W. Bush's administration. The cabinet works in a similar way to what James and John are wanting. Uh, the vice president sits uh, directly opposite of the president. The Secretary of State, who ranks first among the departments, sits on the right of uh, the President's right hand. Secretary of the Treasury, who ranks second, sits at the Vice President's right hand. The Secretary of Defense sits to the left of the President. The Attorney General sits to the left of the Vice President. It's basically the same thing that Peter and uh, sorry James and John are wanting. They're saying, listen, we want to sit in the two most important positions in the kingdom. We want power. We want the authority. We want, we want to be able to make decisions in the kingdom. And Jesus says, I get what you're wanting, but do you know what it's going to take to get there? Do you know what it's going to take for me to get there? They're like, yeah, we'll do it. Right? I love the optimism of the apostles. They're always like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I know you've told us twice you're going to be killed and you know, mocked and beaten and spit on, but yeah, we'll do it. Sure, we can take anything. Um. They're just, I just, I just love those kind of people. But Jesus knows better, right? And what Jesus does in this moment is so interesting. He's like, I'm not going to promise you anything. Because here's what Jesus knows about them. The rich young ruler comes wanting to keep his money and just do some different behaviors. John, James and John are wanting that, listen, we'll be willing to give up anything on earth as long as we get to have power later. That's the whole thing, right? I'll, we'll give up here on earth. We'll make the very mature decision, by the way, to live a life of persecution and to follow you unto death as long as we get to have power in the next age. And Jesus is like, no. And here's why I think he does that. Because Jesus is the hope, not the power. We don't look to heaven and think about the material things that we will get. We don't look to heaven and think about the power that we might have, how we can judge angels, whatever that means. We look to Jesus as our hope, being with the Father. Naturally, the rest of the disciples are upset. Verse 41, and when they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that they're indignant because they just didn't think of it first, right? And they're thinking like, man, why didn't we, why didn't we think to ask Jesus to be at the right hand? 
in the kingdom. Uh, other gospel writers tell us that actually it was James and John's mother that made this request. So maybe they're just mad that, you know, these guys got their mother involved, which is always a weird thing to do. Um, or maybe they're just mad because they realized that James and John went behind their back to try to get one on them. Because if they're at the right hand of, of Jesus, they're at the right and the left hand of Jesus, do you know who's under them? The other ten apostles, right? That's what they're wanting. They're wanting to be in charge of the rest of the apostles. So Jesus, again, for the third time in our, in our passage this morning, Jesus calls the disciples to him. And he's going to give this one last lesson uh, for this morning, not in his life. He says this, verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave. Leadership in our world is all about power. Uh, there's a, a quote in Jurassic, the first Jurassic Park movie. Let me read it. It says, uh, it's Jeff Goldblum's character, if you know who that is. He says, you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you never stopped to think if you should. That's what power is all about in our day and age. You don't have to bother to worry about if you should do something. The only question is, can we get by with it, right? Can we, will, do, will we get caught, right? Will people be okay with it? Will the marketing PR firm have a problem with this? If not, then let's do it. So much so, right, that there's a group of people, I don't know if you're familiar with this, um, I only really know it, about it through my wife Kristen, but there's a group called Influencers, uh, especially online, social media kind of things. These are people who have so many people who follow them online that then companies come to them and they say, hey, if you'll talk about our products, we'll pay you. Right? Just to talk about our product on your social media, like on Facebook or on Instagram or wherever else, right? People then start pushing you, you know, coffee or postage meters or clothes or whatever. I, I don't know what they're talking about now, right? It's all about power, right? It's all about power. The ability to, they're literally called influencers. The ability to influence other people to do the things that you want them to do or the things that you've been hired to get them to do. Jesus says that's not the way the kingdom works. It's not about sitting at the right hand and my left hand so that we get to make, you get to make all the decisions. That's not how the kingdom works. You don't need influence, at least not the way that you're thinking about it. You want to be first? Great. I love that. I love the heart that you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Then become a slave. Why? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons. First, he says, because, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I know I said this last week a lot, and I, it may become a phrase that I say a lot here, especially from the pulpit, but if you want to follow Jesus, then you actually have to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I've been on this earth for, you know, at this point, it's probably close to 32 years. I've been on this earth for almost 32 years, and, and I, I'm not someone who gets served. I don't walk into town and everyone loves me and does whatever they, uh, whatever I want for them. That's not the way my life works. Don't think that's the way your life will work. So you come to church not to be served as a consumer, getting, you know, getting something. You come to serve as a servant. You don't go home this afternoon to be served like you're the king of the castle, but you go there to serve as a slave. You go into work tomorrow or virtually tomorrow as it may be. Not to be served as the boss, but to serve as a servant. This sounds exhausting when I say that. It is exhausting to serve others all the time. 
to give up always for them, always, over and over and over and over. It will require the Holy Spirit to do it. You can't do it on your own. Finally, Jesus gives us one last reason. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom. What does that mean? Ransom is the price that you pay, right? We think of ransom in our modern times as the money you give to someone who kidnapped somebody, right? And you, give, you pay the ransom. And I know if you watch, you know, most of the police shows and things, you don't pay the ransom. You know, you got to do something else. And you always go to the police, right? Whatever. But ransom in this day would probably not be from kidnapping. It would probably be from debtors. People who have gotten in so much debt that what they had to do is they had to sell themselves to work for someone else to pay off their debts. And Jesus said, I have come to give my life as the payment for those people who have sold themselves into sin. We're not kidnapped by Satan and sin. We weren't the complete victims in this moment. We made the choice. Adam and Eve made the first choice, and we have made the same choice over and over for the rest of our life, that we will be in sin. We will live according to sin. As Americans, we love the idea of being our own independent people. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a great price. So glorify God in your bodies. You are not your own. You don't get to make the decisions that you think you do. You were paid off. Someone else owns you. So glorify him in your body. By serving as he did. The great shift for Martin Luther happened um, from being a Catholic monk who understood salvation according to the way the Catholic Church did at that time, to being the leader of the Protestant Reformation, really creating a schism that he didn't really even intend as you look up his story. But all that happened while reading the book of Romans. He saw Paul talk there about the righteous. And there's actually a, a difference between, at that time most of the Catholic Church read, or the church, it would just be, church read uh, the scriptures in latin the latin word for righteous to uh, is actually from two words to make righteous like you might make a craft or make something in a wood shop but when he was reading it in the greek in the original way that paul wrote it the word there isn't to make righteous is to be counted righteous luther realized that this righteousness doesn't come from something that happens inside of us, that we work towards righteousness and God helps us along as we do it, but rather that righteousness is given to us from Jesus Christ. That he takes Jesus's righteousness, and it's what theologians call imputed righteousness, he puts it into us so that now God looks at you, if you're a believer, as he looks at Jesus. He looks at your record as if it is Jesus's record. He is satisfied with you as if he is satisfied with Jesus. Is that how you view your salvation this morning? Or did you view it like Jesus came and saved you, and now you're making yourself a good person who is worthy of heaven? Because if you're looking at it as someone who is entirely dependent on what God has done for you, in that way, then you might come to not to be served, but to serve like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many.
that there are many in this room who can say, Jesus, you have paid my sin for me. And Father, we are thankful for that. Father, I pray that we would live lives that show that we have been bought with a great price and that we are not our own. Father, in that way, help us to be those kinds of people. Help us to be that kind that loves your gospel, that understands your gospel, and lives in light of that gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.